thinking about potentially checking out Deborah. My wife um, is looking extra hot just because you're here. Snap, snap, snap. Did you call, <laughs> did you call Kim Deborah? Hi folks, welcome to the Chris Hand Podcast. Today we're here to talk about Tom Segura's new book, I'd Like to Play Alone, Please. Podcaster, DJ, producer, comedian, actor, and all-around renaissance man. This book is a number one hot, hot, tight gene seller. Check it out. Do you like Tom Segura? Yeah. Okay. Do you not like Tom Segura? Is it because he's problematic? I oh yeah, I have yeah, I have um, I have mixed feelings ab- about Tom. I um, uh, one of my friends, uh, Jason Sens. I don't know if you know Jason Sens. I'm not ringing a bell. He's in a lovely metal band. Okay. Um, that I'm spacing on the name of, and I feel like a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> my kid has taken my my brain, so I don't. Of course, really, I don't have. Um, I don't have memory anymore. It's just it's gone. Um, but he introduced me to to Tom Segura, and I was like, you know, I kind of like binged a couple of his like Netflix specials, and was oh, okay. like, you're hilarious. And then like, I rewatched them, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you're really funny, and you're also really fucking really 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 awful <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, it's one of the, like, he's one of those guys that, like, he enjoys making people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's the, the, it's, it feels weird calling comedy art, but, like, it, mm-hmm. it is because most of the time what you're being on stage is not who you really are off stage. Right. So it's, it's like a one man play or a one person play. Mm hmm. And depending on what type of like, have you heard of Anthony Jeselnik? No. Okay. The Do guy I... seems like an absolute monster. Okay. But is like one of the nicest human beings in the world. Yeah. So it's like this weird, like showcase of the thing. Hopefully, the reason why you're laughing at something that sounds ignorant is be is for ironic reasons. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like he he's ed- like edgy, but as a again, it was like as a human being, is like I don't actually care about any of this stuff. Like none yeah. of these things I hold to heart. Like none of these are like my values. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just find it so interesting. I love your dogs. Um <laughs> I think that what I find interesting and also just kind of like... Ladies and gentlemen, Chelsea Bolin, <laughs> you're not getting the normal intro. <laughs> That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> yes, we're just going to dive right in. That's fine. Um, the thing that I find like interesting and also like what the fuck is wrong with you about it is like some of the things that comedies or comedians are like joking about right now are like and have been forever. 
But like there's more of a spotlight on it now because there's more people aware and like living these experiences. I think it begs the question of like, is there harm that you're doing when you're like doing your art? And like what type of like privilege and power do you have when you can just like kind of like walk off stage and then be like, well, I just made this thing that people are going to consume and some people are probably going to take me seriously. Yeah. But then I'm going to get off stage and then I'm just going to be able to just walk away and be like, well, that's not really something of value that I hold. So like, I'm not going to be responsible. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's the piece that kind of it just doesn't, doesn't sit well with me. I think that's that's the biggest issue with Chappelle right now. Is yeah. He, he understands that people are listening to him in a different way that they used to. Mm-hmm. When somebody would watch a Chappelle like stand-up special, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, it was in the under the constraints of like this is tried and true material of like just goofy shit. Yeah. Whereas now because he was gone and came back, it was like uh like people gave developed their own savior complex for him. So like it was like the Messiah returning because he was so good at writing jokes that like people were just like, Oh my God, we'll listen to whatever you say. We're fucking here for it. Mm-hmm. And at first it, it was, it was just jokes and that was fine. But then he recognized how people were listening to him mm-hmm. and started to deliver real messages. So he started to muddy that whole, like you can't do, did you watch eight forty six? Mm-mm. So it was a small, it was supposed to be him just testing material out. Okay. Uh, uh, but then the George Floyd thing happened. Mm-hmm. And he did a, a talk on how the officer knelt on George for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Okay. And it was, it was not, it was a more of on the pulpit type of speech than it was yeah. just a, comedian holding a mic Mm -hmm. so when you confuse because it looks like it's in the same place that you tell jokes so now when we see you telling jokes for real Mm -hmm. how are we supposed to know the difference so he's mixing up this whole like i have a real message that i want to convey with but also i'm a comedian Mm -hmm. and like it for him it's almost impossible to have it both ways I think for anyone, it's almost impossible to have it both ways, especially if you're like joking uh, at, at the, like at the expense of another person. Like, uh, and yeah. that's kind of like it's it's like how and I guess it's like so I'm saying like so many times. That's OK. In the stand up <laughs> world, it's called um, punching down. Okay. So maybe I need more information about like what the (laughs) fuck comedy is like, cause I'm just sitting at home laughing at it and then being like, that's fucked up. I shouldn't be laughing. Well, and that's, (laughs) that's part of like the, the, your, have you ever heard like a kid crying in target and you do that laugh of like, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I do that with my son all the time. Right. So it's similar to that. And you're going, oh, you're laughing because you're like, oh, fuck. Why are we such a shitty country or whatever the the topic is, right? Yeah. Like, why do we still have this misrepresentation or whatever? So if you do it right, you're laughing with the comic at how fucked up that situation is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But 
if you get have people like Ricky Gervais who are like think that they when when you're a multimillionaire and you're complaining about being able to tell transgender jokes like the fuck are we doing yeah you're doing fine you don't even need to do stand-up anymore you sure as fuck don't need to be doing transgender transgender jokes Mm -hmm. they want to make a point that says comedians are supposed to be able to make a joke about anything because we need that like when friends make dark jokes after a funeral Mm-hmm. to try and you know cope with something like it's supposed to be this like communal coping mechanism and escape from the everyday bullshit but if you complain about not being able to say that shit it's like you're 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 missing it like yeah. you're you recognize that you know times change and it's not snowflake shit like this is like human rights yeah so they they because that whole snowflake thing got thrown around like they they confuse that with like oh how come i can't and it's like we'll just go into any transgender community and like they'll tell you why you shouldn't be saying shit like that right it's very simple yeah well and i think like what what you just said <laughs> made me think of like doing things in community it's being if that's like the point of, of comedy is like I'm I'm in community with other people and we're like we're having a shared experience about like some fucked up shit, you know, then I just think about like stay in your own lane. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, like, and I mean, it, it, com- leave leave transgender jokes to people that are transgender and let them kind of like express what's funny and what's not funny. I don't know. I ha- I have a lot of thoughts. I think a lot about a lot of things. I think there's. There's a way to, there's a way to, there's a way to tell, it's like the word Mexican in America. Mm -hmm. When people hear that, they get a little like on pins and needles because it's been such, it's been made fun of and been such a fucked up topic of conversation for so long Yeah, that people just feel like something racist is going to come after. Yeah, I've experienced that. In in myself, like, you know, like someone. I, yeah, I can I can relate to that experience. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's just such a weird thing that like you don't I think if it goes on for too long, you don't realize that it's happening. Mm-hmm. But there's a way to talk about those things without it being shitty. You can say Mexican. Right. You can say Jew, somebody who is a Jew or Jewish mm-hmm. like. There's nothing inherently wrong with somebody being Jewish. Like, no, right. But for some reason, when you say these words, like for some reason, isolated, they feel really heavy. Yes. But that's, I mean, that's because of history. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> I did a roast where there was this, um, there was this comic who's, uh, non-binary. Okay. And, uh. The joke was, um, they go by, oh, I'm still new to pronouns, uh, but it turns out that asshole is gender neutral. So, <laughs> so there's ways to make fucking jokes without, yeah. it's not actually attacking, I'm attacking that person because they suck, but right. as far as like, making jokes about those things it's possible to do it without punching down 
Right. Yeah. It's I. I believe that it is possible to do that without without like actively harming the the person who's living who's living the experience. But it seems like there's a lot of people who don't understand how to do that. Yeah. And they're just like willy nilly saying fucked up shit on a huge scale without thinking that there's anybody living it. Yeah. You know, or they're like conflating like. And this is something that I, you know. Like conflating like, well, I. I have struggles and so like because I have struggles I can talk about the struggles of other people when it's like just because you have struggles doesn't mean you understand the struggles of all people like they're not equal. Yeah. Well, and as like because the society seems progressive right now. Mhm. It's not. There's a lot of people who think <laughs> because I don't hold hate in my heart, it's okay for me to say this thing. Yeah, it's not. But no one knows if you're a stand up like no one really knows you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they don't know like what you do when you go home at night and shit like that. So to assume that people know, just know your intentions and there's no malice behind it is kind of dumb. Yeah. And ignorant. And ignorant. <laughs> yes. <coughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about. It's not. I don't even Although know what we're fun, here to talk about. And I'm fun ex- conversation. excited. So Chelsea and I met um, we were volunteers at a penguin rescue farm. And it was penguins who had lost their little left feet. And so they could only, they were spinning around in circles. And it was our job to help them so that they could walk straight again. Well, waddle straight again. Where was that? Alaska. Okay. Because there was a lot of penguins missing their left feet walking on shore. Now I can tell people I've been to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, can I take my crocs? What? Can I take my crocs? Oh yeah. Also, I love. Yes, it's it's a mechanism that I I tried like I want it to feel as non-serious as possible, sure. so that it's easier to have open conversation. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a couple penises behind you. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I just see the one pink one. Oh no, there's the dick fingers. Yeah, the octopus. Oh. <laughs> okay, carry on. It was funny. I saw them online, and I was like, "They're so well done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of want them." Yeah, I just got them. I I'm glad you did. They're hilarious. Those are wonderful. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Yes. Anyways, carry on about how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, through Cammy, my wife. Your whiff. Yep, my whiffy whiffins. Um and. I forget what like the initial meeting, but uh, I the main thing was the video of your guys' proposal. Yeah, Yeah. because it was double proposal. It was a double proposal. So at first, I was hoping if you wouldn't mind telling the story of the. Sure, I can do that. So when I tell this story, I always like to preface it with that it was it was not meant to be a double proposal. It was not like you know. we didn't like show up on the same day with plans to propose to each other, <laughs> but we had plans to propose to each other about a week apart and neither of us knew about it. Um, and so we were living in this little apartment in St. Cloud. Um, actually, it wasn't that little. It was like a two bedroom. It was pretty big. One of the biggest apartments we've had, actually. <laughs> so, it's 
not small. Um, <laughs> and we both were, I guess, just like, this is it. Like, we're going to propose. Like, I think we'd been together for like a year at that time. So not very long. I bought her ring and I asked her parents, you know, like, are you guys cool with me doing this? And they both were like, yeah. Um, meanwhile, her mom knew that Cammy was going to be proposing to me <laughs> as I'm like, hey, I have this ring and like, I'm doing it this time. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we had like a little um, like housewarming get together for our new apartment. And um, yeah, I proposed to her there and her mom went in because we both cammy and i were hiding our um engagement engagement rings in our closet (laughs) (laughs) just like in random places neither of us found them which is great yeah and so cammy's mom before i proposed to cammy went in our closet and got the ring that Cammy had gotten for me so that after I proposed to Cammy, she could give Cammy my ring to like, you know, she beat you. <laughs> Here's the ring. Um, yeah. And so I, I proposed to Cammy and then we hugged and I, we let go of the embrace. And then Cammy was like, well, I was planning on proposing to you <laughs> next weekend. Um, and yeah, it was, su- it was very surprising and funny. And wonderful and very us because we we do a lot of like those like I was just thinking that or like I'm thinking oh, the same yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, like it's we'll come out, you know, like for the day or like to an event dressed in very similar clothing. We'll come out in like this the same color scheme. Like it's just a lot of that <laughs> happens in our relationship. So yeah. But yes, so that's how <clears throat> Oh, excuse me. I took a deep, dry breath in. Uh, but yeah, so that's how I know you. Yep. And um, I'm I'm curious as to what uh, what made you want to dive more into the the mental health field. Okay. Um. Oh God. I could spend all day talking about this. <laughs> my my parents both have mental. I mean, mental illness. Like my mom. Um, has anxiety, depression, my dad, anxiety, depression. It's just kind of always been there. Mm. Like it's just always been an experience. Um, and then that I have been trying to understand and process. Um, and then I started to experience my own mental illness with depression and anxiety. Um, and then I started college and I was like 22-ish. Um, changed my major and decided to do social work. And then I was originally going to do speech pathology. And I was like, I am not smart enough for this shit. (laughs) No. Like I remember, Oh my God, Chris, I remember (laughs) I, (laughs) there was this test that I was trying to take online and it was in like one of the basic speech pathology, language, speech and pathology classes. And it was like, you could take the test as many times as you wanted, but you had to get like this, like a certain amount. Like it was like 80%. Oh, okay. I had to take the test like 16 times before I got 80%. <laughs> it was. And so after that, I was like, you know, I just don't think that I'm cut out for this. Like I'm going to, I know when something's not working and like, if it's, if it's not working, I'm going to try something else. 
And so I was thinking about, well, you know, what am I interested in? And I was like, well, I'm interested in people um, and helping. Um, ding, codependency. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I looked into social work and was like, yeah, I think that this is something that, you know, could work for me. And then as I was in school, um, we just talked a lot about like mental health and the possibilities of like the areas that I could work in. Um, and from there, like the more information I gathered about social work in the realm of mental health, that was, it just made like, it made sense to me. Like I could understand it. I could empathize with it. I could connect to it. And yeah. And that was just kind of like where it all began. And I had an interest in working in like hospital. Okay. Um, hospital social work, which I did for four years. I worked in an inpatient mental health unit in the cities for four years. And then um So was that advocacy? No, I so doing like social work on on an inpatient mental health unit, what that looks like, um, at least where I, I'm I think it looks can I, can similar. Can you grab this guy and then just so inpatient mental health in a hospital, like our role is to provide like crisis support, like crisis therapeutic, like short term support um, and then connect people with resources. So whether that is like if someone is experiencing homelessness, connecting them with like shelter resources or a shelter to stay at when they're discharging from the hospital, um, if they don't have money to pay for their medications, providing like vouchers for medications connecting them with like outpatient um therapy support so scheduling them with a therapist finding them a medication provider in the community if they take medications communicating with their family or loved ones or caregivers when they are in the hospital like trying to kind of bridge the gap a little bit oh okay cuz a lot of people i mean mental health is totally stigmatized and Ugh. even though it's better now it still isn't better <laughs> I, I don't know um and so a lot of people would come in and there would be a rub between like family or caregivers or friends in like understanding what they're going through and that was exacerbating what they were experiencing mm. in regards to their mental illness so being someone kind of in between to provide psychoeducation and support to them on like, this is how you can best support this person as they're going through this process. And once they, you know, come home and return to their lives um, so that they're less alone. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's more of on like the, the calmer side of things. And that was the piece of it that I enjoyed a lot, like providing resources and connecting with families and helping people share what they've been wanting to share but like couldn't really share with their loved ones oh yeah and helping just like f facilitate conversations the other side of it was like when people come into the hospital and let's and for example let's say that they're experiencing like mania okay or psychosis or something like that and they're not in a state of mind where they're making reality-based decisions and a doctor is concerned about their ability to make decisions for themselves and their safety in the community 
they will put them on like an emergency hold. And then if they feel like it's, you know, severe enough, they do a petition for civil commitment. Um, and it essentially, you know, it gets the the county involved and the mm-hmm. courts involved. Um, and a lot of times forces people to stay in the hospital, forces them to take medication sometimes, forces them to like go to treatment after the hospital. It's, you know, and when I first started, I was like, this is helping. Like this, 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 this is helping people. And, and in some cases I saw that it was helpful. Um, but the longer I was there, the more it didn't, it didn't feel helpful. And it actually felt like traumatizing for a lot of people. Um, and once I really connected with that, my, with that understanding, um, I just was like, I can't. I can't get any to do it because it just didn't feel it didn't feel right. Yeah. So that's when I went into outpatient therapy. Well, I mean, the the initial thing of like they they want people to feel normal, but they remove individuality really quickly. Right. And it's like it's supposed to be this group thing, but it feels more like hurting than it does. Like, mm-hmm. let's all come and talk about this or or what have you. Um. Because I don't know if you know, but I, so I was on mental health unit twice. Okay. Uh, I had two stays. The first time was like, I mean, it's a shitty scenario either way, but I I ended up there over a holiday weekend. Okay. Yep. So I was there longer because, you know, judge has to do all the thing. And Were the you thing. put on a hold? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Weekends I, and holidays don't count. Yeah, exactly. Which is really confusing for people. Yeah. So you... People say you need help, and this is where you're going to get help. But I didn't feel like an adult, right? Um, you know, I'm I'm asking twenty year olds if I can have crayons to be able to to color things and like, <clears throat> and I I don't mean to say these things to like make it seem like these people are ill willed, yeah. But I just don't think because. You know, it's it's when you see it repetitive, the people that are in mental health long term, you have to shut off a part of your brain because if you were it, if you took it on like a normal human being, that shit comes home with you and it's like impossible to process. Like, yes. <clears throat> it's so brutal. Yep. That's pretty spot on. But then the people who, yeah, who stay there, it's they're like soldiers like you're going through shit that normal people can't handle and the stuff that i saw was eventually you kind of become a number or a task as a patient yeah yeah so yeah so you become like a like a task or a chore versus somebody who needs help yep does that make sense Mm -hmm. i saw that too and so it was tough it was weird because I knew a lot and I did need help. But at the same time, I would see these things and I can't help myself but be, but say things like, do you, do you need to talk to that person that way? Mm-hmm. And they would be like, look, one of us is in a jumpsuit and it's not me. It's not me. Yeah. Or one of us has shoelaces and the other does not. So like, yeah. Does someone say that to you? 
No, but it was. I was gonna say that that's really fucked up. Kind of, kind of the vibe. Yeah. I don't know if you heard of Doctor Meanie. It's insane because it sounds like it's from a fucking TV show. But that was a doctor's name that you worked with, <laughs> Doctor yeah. Meanie. Doctor Meanie. That person should not have become a doctor. <laughs> yeah, no, they. It ended up turning out that they were sexually assaulting patients and like. Oh damn. This guy was insane. He wore a three-piece suit and everybody else was wearing scrubs. So it at least kind of felt like we were in it together to some degree. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Was this at St. Cloud Hospital? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I need to look into this and I need to read about this. Okay. It, it was crazy. That is really crazy and terrifying <clears throat> because doctors, especially on a mental health unit, they have all the control. Yeah. They have all of the control. And that is, yeah, that's pretty terrifying. But so this guy wore a three-piece suit. And I asked him why. And he said it was because he wanted to make a clear. <coughs> I don't know why I'm drying up. I don't know why you're drying up either, man. I was so lubed up before. <laughs> I might have to grab a cough drop. Um, but he wanted to make a clear divide between patient and doctor. And I was like, D- don't you think that that like makes people more close off? He was like, I don't know. I just know that um, I need uh, I need that to be very evident that we're different. We're not the same. And I was like, wow, what a weird thing to want to make sure that people know that we're not the same. So it made sense that like when all the allegations and shit came out, there was just yeah. like, well, fucking of course this guy. Okay, I'm gonna grab a cough drop real quick. That's fine. Are you better? I don't know. Okay. I feel like I have to whisper now. We don't need to whisper. <laughs> but yes. So anyways, um, Dr. Meanie. So that was like, I think that's also part codependency is being like that white knight syndrome. Oh, yeah. Where like, I feel like you clearly don't recognize what you're doing to patients. So I'm going to have, obviously it has to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that a lot. Like, but yeah, so the whole mental health, like experience from the patient side of things was, it felt like no one really wanted to be there, whether you were an employee or a patient. Okay. Like there was a lot of like, let's get through this and, hopefully we all come out okay on the other end of things mm-hmm. um like the yeah the first time i was on there was three uh lockdown situations because of patients getting violent and like it's it like it's not like in the movies or tv shows no it's not but in some cases it's exactly like it yeah it's a it's a weird mixed bag yeah and it depends on the day and it depends on the person and the situation and the staff. Yeah. So it's weird to be like, you know, what, what people think, like that there's going to be people like rocking back and forth and. No, it's not like that. Scratching on the wall and shit like that. But then you have situations where like, yeah, somebody threw a cup of piss on the, one of the employees, but like it doesn't happen all the time. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean. As a staff person, I mean, I have to abide by HIPAA 
right? So like when when I leave work, you know, there are some days where I'm like, this really awful, traumatic, crazy, ironic, totally fucked up thing happened. And like, I need someone to talk to about it. But like, how do I talk about this in a way that's not going to give out any information? Is there exception with therapy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, okay. in in therapy, you can pretty much talk about like whatever because your therapist also has to abide by HIPAA. Okay. Yeah. So that is a safe space. Um. So it's when I hip, you hip, we hip. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when I hip and hip and hip and, yip, 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 yip. and dip. Yeah, exactly. I loved that song as a kid. <laughs> I mean, it's so catchy. It is very catchy. Um, can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, why were you hospitalized? Uh, suicide attempts, both times. Okay. Um, so that was the other weird thing is like to to be like my mental wherewithal was there. Mm-hmm. It's like I just had this one thing that was wrong. It just so happened to be suicide. Yeah. So it's like. Everything else seems normal. Every conversation seems fine. I just so happened to try to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And so it was this weird thing of like, to me, it felt like I mean, everything's fine now. Yeah, because the a, attempt was, is over. It, yeah. So it was a failed attempt. So it's like all of my conversations are rational and all these things. And like, so it was weird. So very quickly, it felt like I didn't need to be there. You know what I mean? That's common for I would say in my experience, the majority of people that come that I worked with that came into the hospital that experienced suicide attempts when they got there and the attempt was over and they were alive had the experience of I'm fine and I don't need to be here and being here is actually unhelpful. Right. Yeah. But. Obviously, there was a second attempt, so there was a lot of things that I brushed off. Okay. Addiction being one. Um, hypomania. Okay. Um, ADHD. So there was like this culmination of things that uh, look like bipolar disorder. Yeah. But they're all like very circumstantial. And so, but on a bad day when they all come together, it's fucking horrible. Yeah. And I didn't know that. Okay. So there was like, even though I, I think it's like that, that it's like an adrenaline rush. Suicide was this adrenaline rush. But once that's done, it's like, there's nothing there. Yeah. And that's a very risky. Yeah. It's a risky behavior to get adrenaline rush. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I worded that wrong. It's similar to when you get an adrenaline rush. And oh, then okay. once it's over, you're like, whoa, that was crazy. Okay, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes more sense. Yeah. <clears throat> God damn it. This is gonna be the show of clearing throats. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I mean, I I constantly clear my throat. It's fine. I'm normally like just really professional and it sounds good. You can be professional and clear your throat at the same time. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. ah, thank you. Yeah. So the first time felt like i didn't need to be there second mm-hmm. time i was like this is exactly where i belong and like okay i don't deserve to be out in the real world so because i couldn't get over addiction i didn't think that i was ever going to be able to get over it 
I was just like, I'm just constantly a burden on everybody. So these are my people and this is where I belong. So did you see that like defeat in people when you were, does that make sense? Like that? Yeah. Or that surrender to being like, uh, this is exactly where I belong. Um, sometimes I don't know that I came across anyone who was had like that about their like how they were identifying like with their humanity Mm. of like, I deserve to be in this place, um, with, with these people, but I've, I did work with a few people that experienced like, I am not doing well right now um and i need to be in this place because i need help um and when i look around i see a lot of other people that also need help so like this makes sense that i'm in this space but no the way that the way that you worded it and kind of how how you felt it sounds like there was because almost like layered with some stigma too yeah yeah, of like, I've done something wrong, and I know where people go when they've done something wrong, and it's the psych ward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just when <clears throat> when there's no, there's, no, there, there's no way for your family and friends to be able to just talk this situation through. Right. So when it goes beyond that, this is where I'm supposed to be. Nobody understands my mental state. Mm-hmm. And so being among other mentally unwell individuals is is where I'm supposed to be. Right. And I'm just doomed to drum circles and finger painting for the rest of my life. Because, you know, I was in there with, with people who were there for like nine months. That's the other thing is like, placement for people is so difficult yes it is um not having beds like if anything like that is i think misunderstood the most is staff and capacity like Mm -hmm. being able to there's so many people that need help and sometimes they're they're sent four hours away because there's no beds available yeah and that's a fucking trip. Like I'm lucky that that didn't happen to me, but like at that point I would feel more like a prisoner. Like you're a convict being transferred to someplace else. Yeah. And like, you're so far removed from what little support system you might have. Yeah. So you're getting way less visits. Like it's, yeah, it's crazy. Well, in in COVID times, you don't get visitors. Oh yeah, that's it's the other not thing. a thing. Like wow. they cut that off very very quickly. And when I left, I mean, I I left the hospital in May. There was still a no visitor policy. Wow. Yeah, and that was like one of the hardest things I think for. For me as a staff person working with people is like, I'm here to support you and I'm here to help. But then like all of the responsibility, responsibility of helping and being a source of support is kind of like on me. And I can't I can't 
fulfill that for you. And that started to feel like pretty helpless. Um, And it just became like kind of a daily thing of people coming in, wanting, needing support, wanting, needing connection of people that they had in their lives who were their loved ones and their friends and their, you know, their comrades and and all that. And then just being told repeatedly that they're not going to get that. Um, and that's heartbreaking. It's yeah. heartbreaking and was really hard. Well, one of the few like positive things you get to say to residents is, you know, oh, we got visitors today, like giving them something to look forward to. And then they're not able to have that thing. Like, it's, I can't imagine. Yeah, it just it 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 was more of like a it it just became the same kind of conversation. Like, you know, especially when they're when people were having like a hard day, you know, we couldn't be like, OK, well, let's call and like get a visit scheduled for tomorrow it's like well what do you have as a source of support right now going to fucking group yeah like you know and sometimes that is helpful but like for people that have been there for a while there's only so much group that a person can take yeah before it's just like i'm just existing here and i'm not getting anything out of it well and there's already tension like on a daily basis. But in those groups, especially like people start eyeing each other and you can just tell if the wrong thing is said. Yeah. There could be a, an issue like stack on top of that. Like the fact that people are disgruntled that they can't see their love. Like that was if I didn't have that the last time that I was in, I can't genuinely can't imagine what that would have felt like. Like having being able to see family, yeah, and friends and stuff, yeah. Not to backtrack like massively, but that's all right. You you said something before that made me curious. So, mom and dad, anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Did you was that something that you realized growing up, or was it something that you looked back on and went, ah, this is clearly what they have? It was a little bit of both, like. There were experiences when I was younger where I think my mom tried to explain it to me in a way that she understood mm. um, so that I could understand it in a kid way. Okay. If my mom would get depressed, um, she at that time was kind of like thinking about it from a standpoint of like her diet and like if I eat too much sugar it imbalances me. Ah, okay. Um, you know, and so, and I, I think that that was a, a real part of that. Like, and I experience that now in my adulthood of like, if I eat too much sugar, I feel like shit and I'm totally emotionally dysregulated. Ah. Um, not all the time, but like there are times when that happens. And so I think that was her way of like trying to make sense of it herself and then trying to explain it to me of like, mom needs to sleep or like mom needs a break. Because she's had too much sugar, Mm. you know, and then in retrospect, I was like, there were a lot of like other things that were going on, i.e. depression, anxiety. So did you notice like would they cancel plans a lot Um, or try to avoid like with anxiety and depression? I feel like there's such a massive relief when you don't have to do a thing. Oh, yeah. I love not doing that. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't I I don't know 
that I remember that ever happening. It was more, more, it was more along the lines of like at home. Okay. Like I think, um, I think my mom especially, um, wanted to not have it like take over in a lot of ways. And so I, I, as an adult now, when I'm reflecting on it, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like all and most of the implosion happened like behind closed doors. Like we're going to like do the plans. We're going to do the things. But then like when that's exhausting at home, it's going to things are going to kind of fall apart. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And my dad, I mean, he his anxiety just manifested in a lot of control. Like um, and I've talked to him about this. As an adult, because I have like, I think 100% inherited like oh, sure. some of some of those like anxious behaviors. Um, so like when I was younger, like it was all about um, like keeping things clean and things being like done. Um, so like when you do the dish, when you get done eating, like do the dishes right away. Like don't let things sit in the sink or like when you're done doing something, clean up after yourself. Like, you know. My house when I was younger, I mean, it almost looked like it wasn't lived in. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, because it was just like, and granted it was me and only me and my dad when I was there. So it was just the two of us. But yeah. And now when I'm feeling extra out of control and extra anxious, that's like the thing that I go to is like, what can I control? Cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one for Kim. Okay. Um, yeah, she feels anxious and then she just looks for something to be able to yeah. manage. Right. And that can be helpful. <clears throat> it can be helpful. And for me, sometimes it is helpful. I think the way that it kind of gets in the way is when you expect other people to also fall in line with what you're doing. Do you catch yourself doing those things like when company is over? Like cleaning? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I, yeah, yes. And I, my father-in-law actually commented on it and I was like, oh, fuck. Like I, I felt bad because I was like, oh, this is not, this isn't my value. Like I wanted to spend time with you, but I was feeling anxious about the house being dirty and unclean, which ties back to a core belief because that's how it always is. Um. You know, of like me being unclean or not worthy or gross or Mm. whatever. Um, And so, yeah, like I was cleaning up from dinner and Cam and her dad were hanging out and kind of talking. And I was just like cleaning up from dinner and cleaning the kitchen. And I mean, I cleaned for probably like an hour. And then her dad was like leaving and he was like, well, it would have been great to hang out with you. Oh. But you cleaned, you know, and at first I was like, fuck off <laughs> Like <laughs> in my head. I was just like, whatever, like wait, you wait, don't wait. get it. Let me reenact because so I'm you. You had to go. Fuck off. Because <laughs> he's way down here. <laughs> Have you met Cam's dad? Yeah, I, wor- short. I worked with him. You did? Yeah. OK. I love Cammy's dad. He is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and so I initially like had this like reaction of like no, like don't call me out on my shit. Yeah. You know, I don't like that. 
Um, but then I thought about it and I was like, oh yeah, that really sucked. And I spent all this time cleaning because I was really, really anxious. And I have a lot of a lot of those moments. And it's kind of like my process of like, I get wound up pretty tight and then I got to use my skills and I get wound up tight and I got to use my skills. And I'm trying to get better at not getting so wound up before I'm implementing the skills. I'm getting better at it, but it's it's hard. That's very interesting. You and Kim are, are very similar in that regard. And like, so you're doing a series of the right thing. So if somebody tries to interject, it's offensive because it's like, what, you're mad that I'm making my house look better? Right. What a weird fucking, don't fucking talk to me then. <laughs> I was like, I have a small child and I have no, <laughs> I have no time for cleaning. This is my time for cleaning. <laughs> so like, but really it's, it's an attack on your coping mechanism. Right. So your body's like, well, this is just fucking all we have right now. Mm-hmm. If I have to sit and just stare at you, yep. I'm going to lose it. Yes, that's exactly how I felt <laughs> in the moment. I was like, if I don't clean, I'm just going to sit here thinking about wanting to clean. I'm not going to be able to engage in conversation like I want to. Exactly. I'm going to feel totally on edge. So what's the lesser, un- like what's what's less uncomfortable? Sitting, doing that, or cleaning knowing that I'm not engaging yeah. with someone and I just made made the call but then afterwards I was like yeah I you know it would have been nice to do that and so I I have a lot of a lot of those times where in the moment I'm like I really don't want you to call me on my bullshit but then afterwards I appreciate it because I like to you know know when things aren't feeling good for other people like if they want you know, something from me or were expecting something from me and maybe like didn't know, like didn't feel like they were going to have to like prep, like preface that before we hung out. Like I'm expecting, you know, my expectation is that we hang out for a little bit afterwards. (laughs) Like, you know, it made sense in my mind. Like, yeah, he's coming over for dinner. It's not, you know, I don't think that he would have to, you know, make a, a spoken statement like, and I expect that we'll hang out after dinner. Like <laughs> yeah. that's kind of a given. So there's a, uh, what do they call that? A uh, social contract. Okay. Um, where like there's certain things that are unspoken. We agree that if we do these things, then it equals this. thing. Yeah. In a perfect world. Um, Sam Harris, who is also very problematic. Um, another comedian. <laughs> no, um, uh, he's like a philosopher. Oh, okay. Type. Uh, have you heard of Christopher Hitchens? No, maybe I don't. Or know. Richard Dawkins? No. Who are these people? <laughs> so these are scientists. Okay. okay, and but they're also big atheists. Oh, okay. And so they were like prominent. Big up to atheism. <laughs> they were prominent in like these debates and things. And Sam Harris is is one where like. A lot of his stuff is like behavioral and neurological and societal things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he he talks about this this whole social contract thing and how like the reason why people can't trust one another is because that contract is broken so often. Mm. And there's so many examples. And with the advent of technology, we're just flooded with more and more examples. So it feels like very unsafe. We're constantly worried about like, you know, what's school life going to be like for my kid? What's this going to be like? Mm. So all these things. Very different from just having dinner with each other, but 
like that's said the digression. That's my digression. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're related though, and I I mean I like I like knowledge. My <laughs> I like knowledge a lot because it's like my therapist told me this the other day and I was like, God damn it, Irene. I say, <laughs> I say that all the time. I have to plug my therapist. She is thebomb.com. I honestly feel like she can help anybody. Um, Do you ever sing, come on, Irene? I haven't <laughs> to her. I have not, but maybe, maybe I should. No, she, um, like, what did, what did she say to me? She was like, you feel like if you have the knowledge and if you understand something that you're going to be able to control the situation. Mm. And so like, and I did that a lot when, when my, when my kid was born, cause I was like, you know, you're thrusted into new parenthood and you have no idea what the hell you're doing. And for people that have anxiety, <laughs> that's like a terrifying experience. And so I did, I just was like, one of the things I did the most was like Googling things that he did or like oh. physical things that showed up and that it was like, I don't know if this is normal or not. And so I was like, if I spend four hours on Google trying to figure out what this is, then I'll be able to understand it and I don't know how to handle it. But then that just like, you know, you can see how that yeah. would not be helpful <laughs> in any situation, especially not with a newborn. Um, but yeah, that was like, that was one of the things that we spent a lot of time talking about, but that's also like transcended into other areas of my life. And it showed up again when I started doing outpatient therapy is like, I started this new job. I'd only done an internship of therapy doing like longer term, you know, work with, with someone working with them over time for about six months. Okay. The rest of my time doing therapy was short term. So in the hospital, you know, like week to two weeks. And it was very, very like brief crisis focused. It wasn't, you know, any like more in-depth processing. Okay. And so when I started, I was just like filled with anxiety and imposter syndrome. And like, I have no idea what the fuck I am doing. And it was totally related back to like, I, what I started to do was like, if I just like understand all the things, if I just like research enough, if I can, you know, know what therapies and what tools to bring into session, you know, and I was just I was really trying to to control the situation and it was not helpful. And I like kind of spiraled out of <laughs> out of control um, well, and I had mean, some pretty bad anxiety with anxiety and codependency like the weight of making a mistake is so much heavier. Yes. <clears throat> so people don't really understand like how stressful that concept can be because when you're talking about like all of the research and things and like wanting to know in like indiscriminately, mm -hmm. I know exactly what this is. It's so vital. Like it's so huge. Uh, like every job that I start or had started within the last like 10 years, I would preface like I'm a slow learner. Okay. And I'm going to ask the same question over and over again probably. And that might seem irritating but like it's it's how I have to learn to know. It's almost like an OCD thing where it's like 
if I don't ask, you know, mm-hmm. a million times, even though like I found myself where I know a thing, but I'm still asking anyways. Yeah. Because I want to know indefinitely. Because if something goes wrong, then it must be something else. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. like and that's about control. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, but it it it, it can be if you don't know that about yourself. Yes. Oof my goof. Yeah. <laughs> Oof my goof <laughs> is right. And even when you do know it about yourself, you'll still get in these traps where you just like you're stuck. And that happened to me. Like I I knew that about myself. I knew that anxiety was about control. I knew that, you know, I wanted to have the answers to all the things to to feel comfortable and still went into this job and this career, you know, this big career step for me that I that has been the end game for me since I started school and started working in mental health 13 years ago. I'm curious too was there any PTSD like going into those careers? Like say more. <clears throat> like were there events that you knew in the back of your mind that like, if I come across a patient who has gone through this thing that I went through, mm-hmm. it might like send like, like have a PTSD response. Like, yeah, that was for me initially. I think one of the things that caused like kind of the most anxiety in, in outpatient, just like for inpatient, it was like, if someone has experienced, you know, something traumatic that I've been through, um, I'm able to sit with that with this person for a short amount of time mm. because I know that my role is crisis. My role is crisis focused. I'm not here to do deep trauma processing with them. That's mm. not my role. And so I could escape it in that setting. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I could just, you know, like I could sit with them and do some acknowledging, do some like high level processing of it, but it never got any, it didn't get deep. That's interesting because there's there's a checklist to the finish line. Like if I can get through, tick these boxes, make sure they're safe, then I can skirt out of there without having a negative mental yes. effect on me. Very interesting. Yeah. And I would try and be like present with them and listening to them and being able to show up for them in that space of how they needed. But I also was trying to be cognizant of the fact that like that was not my role. And there are therapists there who are the people that need to be doing the more deeper processing because they have more time and more availability and they're on the unit more. Um, And at that time I felt better trained than I was to provide that support. Um, So in the hospital setting, that's kind of like where I was at. But through that and then kind of my own own therapy um, and my own processing of trauma and my own like continuing education and reading and all the things, I've come to doing outpatient and wanting to have more of the long-lasting relationship 
doing the deeper processing. And initially I was like, yeah, like I'm ready. I think that I'm ready to go to these places with with my clients, like where I've been with my therapist, which is like, you know, talking about abuse, talking about sexual abuse, talking about, you know, all of the the shitty things that happen in life, talking about codependency, you know, substance use, like all the things. But when I when I started, I think that I thought that I would be able to do a lot more than I actually am mm. able to do. And so I had to have a very honest conversation with myself and scale back on the experiences that I was willing to work with so that I wasn't getting triggered in session and not able to hold my own shit and hold my clients shit at the same time. Mm. Because like, that's like what you're doing in therapy, right? Because we're human beings as therapists. We're all human beings. We all have our own experiences and our own, and our own reactions. Um, And while you're doing therapy with someone, there's no matter what it is, there will be something that comes up. I just realized we, we never like defined what your actual role is. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, I am, um, I'm an outpatient therapist um, with affinity psychological services in St. Cloud. Oh, yep. So I work with a group private practice. The organization is fantastic. It's queer woman owned. Really? Yep. Um, committed to like anti-burnout culture for therapists. Oh, oh, okay. So like being able to work so that you're like, you're not only working, like you're not, because there, there's, I should give context to this. There is like a lot of um, like agencies that do therapy where you're like a W-2 employee, you're not like self-employed. Mm-hmm. Um, where you don't get to choose who you work with. You don't get to choose how many people you want to see. You show up, you work your eight hours a day, and if there's open slots, they get filled. And so essentially, you're seeing 40 clients a week. Yeah. It's not sustainable at all. I've told this story a couple times, but um, when I was in treatment, there was a (laughs) a therapist that I was seeing who... uh, <clears throat> triggered something where I didn't realize that I had maybe gone through ooh, a situation that was a little more fucked up than I had realized. Mm-hmm. Like I had talked about it before and told people and be like, oh, that's pretty nuts, huh? Like, yeah. Okay. It's insane. Um, and then this guy had, had brought it up and uh, at the time it just seemed like that is insane that that happened. But I didn't realize like, like developmentally like what that probably did to me yeah you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and so i'm like because i had been using alcohol to suppress like everything yeah and so then i was like well shit now i'm gonna have an eruption and like i had a massive panic attack had to somebody had to get a wheelchair to come and get me and bring me back to wow okay the wing that i was staying on yeah so the next time he saw me he was like I noticed you had kind of a negative experience last time. I was like, yeah, dude. This this happened when you were in the hospital? When I was in- uh, In treatment? Treatment. Okay. Uh, so this was at Hazelden. Yeah. 
And so it was like already kind of like oddly robotic the way he was talking about it. Rather than being like, how are you doing? Like, it's, I noticed you had a tough time last time. Mm, yeah. He was just very like, so. Um, he had a piece of paper and he's like, I want to try this meditation thing with you to see if we can get you to calm down. And I was like, already suspicious. And so he's saying these things. He's like, so take a deep breath in. Have you taken a deep breath in? Good. And I was like, are you reading the word good? So like I go through the whole thing. Okay. And he's like, so what do you think? I was like, it was fine. Did it say good on the paper? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, it, just for future, like if you're going to try this with other people, it's a little disingenuous when you can clearly hear you like separating these things and going, did you breathe in? Good. That might be just a note for you. Yeah. Did you notice that they took a breath in? Well, good. <laughs> I wonder if that therapist had done that exercise with someone in the past or if that was like if you were the first person that he had tried that it, tried that grounding exercise with. I think I might have been the first one. Yeah. Because or I don't know. I don't know if I, I I think that's that codependency thing where like I can see how that could negatively affect someone later on and say therapy is bullshit because this guy's just reading off a piece of paper. Yeah. Whereas my mind goes, you're doing good. <laughs> let, me, let me help you. <laughs> but don't do this. Yeah. Which is such a weird, like, I am like the epitome of codependency. This is So am I. This is the most codependent thing, I think, that I've ever heard. I'm not trying to like put myself on a codependent pedestal, mm -hmm. but- so my uh, sec second suicide attempt, technically third suicide attempt, I'm in the the uh, ambulance and the EMT. I'm noticing is like a little weird. Okay. And uh, I heard like a like a to that something to that extent. I go, you okay? Because <laughs> I'm the one that's in an ambulance. Right? Yeah. I'm like, you okay? Let me check in with you. And she goes, I just, I just don't understand. And I'm like, you don't understand what? She's like, it just seems like a really selfish thing to do. After I, like an hour before, had just attempted suicide. She, it's so baffling to her. She can't help but like audibly make noise and be fucking weird. And so I go, well, just so you know, if you experience this again, People who are attempting suicide often feel that they're lifting a burden off of you. So I'm not saying that it's like a selfless act, but they think that it is. Mm -hmm. So they think that they are um, like they're they're being attacked. And the only way to escape, ironically, is to die. Yeah. So there's that scenario or. There's such a burden on others that the only way to alleviate their pain is for you to go through this short amount of pain. So I'm like explaining this, the whole ride to the hospital. And like, I can Damn. tell she feels better. And I'm like, oh, good. I'm going to go get checked in now. Did you in turn feel better? I, yeah, of course. Isn't that fucked? <laughs> like, that's like, that's the piece about 
there's an accomplishment and th- th- yes. that's like um uh positive reinforcement it's a set of false positive i don't know maybe <laughs> yeah um it feels positive because a positive thing happened but it's also like uh dangerous practice oh yeah because it can get you in hairy situations really fucking quick like I mean, I, it it was really bad for a long time, and then when the kids came along, because I would try to save people all the time, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they would turn out to be bad people, and I didn't know that until it was almost too late. And do you think they're really are bad people? At the time, they were. Well, some of them, yes. Okay. Some of them, genuinely bad people. Unfortunately, right. yeah. Others just had not realized that they were taking advantage of others. Mm-hmm. They thought that they were doing a good thing by letting somebody help them. You know what I mean? Like, there's people that are too oh, proud yeah, for that yeah. shit. And then there's others that are like, do you really th- you think that's a good idea? And then a codependent person was like, fuck it, yes, of course. Come move in with me for three months. Uh-huh. And I'll get you back on your feet because white knight syndrome. Yeah. It has to be me. Yep. But yeah, it, so there was a point where I realized like it's got to, there has to be a hard stop at some point. Mm-hmm. But fucking fuck, that feels terrible. It feels because, very powerless. Yes, exactly. Oh. Took the words right out of my powerless mouth. Yeah, it's it does. I I never like characterized it in my in my head of like calling it white knight syndrome, but I have read that, but I do that too. And I'm making that connection now, as I sit here that I also, I also do that and have, I do that less now, but interestingly enough, I have made my career (laughs) out of essentially (laughs) white knight syndrome. Oh my God. That's hilarious. Well, obviously you have to quit now. I well, I mean, I've I've thought about it, and that's kind of and it's it's one of the things that I think challenges me the most right now to like stay connected to not having the answers, like not having all the answers. Like a couple months ago, when I started, I was like with cripple cripple like had crippling anxiety because I was like, if I don't have the answer to this person's problem when they show up to therapy. What the fuck am I doing? And then I was like, okay, that that's not that's not the answer. That that's not the way. Um, and then I did a deep dive inside myself and did a lot of talking with my therapist. Um, and I'm trying to stay connected to like I'm not gonna have the answers to people's problems. Do I need to be informed? Do I need to have knowledge about experiences? Yes. Do I need more trainings? Yes. But I'm not responsible for solving people's problems. And I'm not responsible for having the answer. I am a sounding board. And I am someone who can provide support, encouragement, and direction. And I have a couple other bags up my, a couple other tricks up my sleeve because (laughs) of my own lived experience. It's such a bummer because if, if everyone was like you, that that goes back to that social contract thing. Where like 
if everyone is acting accordingly, then things should resolve at some point. Yeah. But because there's such disarray in the mental health world, there's these gaps. So like you do all that you can do, right? Six months later, you see the same person and you're like, what the fuck? What happened? And you find out that like nobody followed up on XYZ. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why? Why didn't somebody follow up? So like Kim doesn't have the codependency stuff. She may have had like some contact codependency for me. Okay. Caught some of that codependency, huh? Yep. Um, and would go beyond and make certain phone calls and because I, I can't remember if they didn't have a social worker for a period of time or what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. But she was setting things up. So she was setting up therapists and she was like doing all of these outpatient-esque things. Okay. For you or for other people? For other people. Oh, okay. Um, in a job where, like you're saying, like your role needs to go here. Yeah. Be knowledgeable, be present. And then either they need to do the self-work afterwards or somebody else is going to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yep. In mental health, there's such a lack of people. Like I met, uh, what was it? 70% of the nurses the last time I was on the unit were floating nurses. Yeah, there's a huge nurse shortage. I mean, it's all the time, but. But I mean, at at that time, like, it was because nobody wanted to be on that unit. Okay. Like, people were getting overtime because they needed overtime. Mm -hmm. And because you list, like, what units you're willing to work on. Okay. When they land on that unit, it's like, uh, it was so bad. I, I, like, noticed habits and things of nurses, and I had, in one day three different like orders basically on how to take my meds or what meds I was allowed to take. And I was like, I don't care what way it needs to happen, but there's gotta be consistency. I've had, you know, three or four of you guys tell me completely different things. Yeah. I don't care what the answer is, but it's gotta be the same because how am I getting like, the goal is for me to leave and be able to, you know, take care of myself. Mm-hmm. If I have like a myriad of fucking like, um, what's the word? Like when contradictions. There you go. Pointy hands. You when found I, it. I have a myriad of pointy hands. Myriad of pointy hands. I like it. <laughs> myriad of contradictions. Like it's so hard to like, like, Pick one and stick with it and create that, yeah. that um, schedule or um, your routine routine for yourself. Mm-hmm. So that was like something that I, I struggled with accepting. And that's another thing with codependency is like you're like, I can't accept this. Like the you like people telling you that it's this way and you're like, but it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Yeah. We yes. could, if we spoke up or if we did whatever, like then it wouldn't be this way. Right. Yeah, I I So I guess let me pose yeah. that in a question. Okay. Pose it in a question, Chris. So give it to me in with, a question. <laughs> with what you were describing, do you 
find that you have to stop yourself because you uh, notice a gap or notice that there is potential for uh, the system failing this individual if somebody doesn't step in. Does that make sense? It it depends. Like, I'm am I going to try and find, you know, a residential treatment program for someone? No. Um, will I send a link to a helpful resource? Yeah. So it kind of depends on like what the person what the person is needing and what they're wanting. And if I feel like in that moment, it feels like I'm going above and beyond. So Hmm. it kind of is. I try and keep it pretty even with everybody. Um, But I also feel it out in the moment of like, is this do I feel like this person has the capability to access this on their own? Or does does this person really need a little bit more help? Um, So trying to like meet them where they're at. That was the most jumbled fucking answer to a question. It's funny because it made total sense to me. Like, okay. I am. Yeah. <coughs> I it's I, I try and keep it as even as I can with everybody, but everyone's need they're differently or different. And mm-hmm. I want to meet people where they're at and not like expect things from people that I know are unrealistic. Well, and, the, and that's putting your you know, learned experience into action. So so that's what I'm hearing. Like reading between the lines is like through therapy, through learned experience, you figured out how to not burn yourself out. I'm trying. Well, I mean, the way that you're able to describe how you handle things for people who have the same issues that we do is huge because a lot of us still don't know when to stop. Like right. if someone were to say like when do you stop is a variable for every person that I'm willing to give time to. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a method. I don't have like like safe practices really. Yeah. Like, I'm still kind of on the edge with certain things. So okay. when I hear you saying that you have these, you know, um expectations and um uh Limits, boundaries, boundaries. Thank you. This is wonderful. Buzzword. <laughs> boundaries, yep. contradictions, copious amounts of cocaine. <laughs> not, not <laughs> since I was a teen. Not since I was a teen. Not since the seventh grade. Soccer was wild. Was that for you? What seventh grade soccer? Did we not all do doing cocaine? cocaine? <laughs> no, mine was like, you know. 14, 15 years old. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to have you back on because okay. <laughs> I. it's funny, like, I had the things that I wanted to talk to you about, but mm-hmm. I didn't know the codependency stuff. I haven't oh, had yeah. somebody who, like, openly, it, like, accepts Is codependent? Have. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I am. Oh, yeah. Around, um, it was before I, before I got pregnant with Declan, like, right before I got pregnant with him. I had an experience at work um, where I was like super fucking pissed at a coworker because they could not read my mind. Oh. <laughs> and then I exploded wow. on them. It maybe wasn't as bad as I just made it out to seem. That's also like. But when, the, well, like, you know how. Oh. In my mind, it was like <clears throat> I fucking lost my, I blew a gasket. Yeah. You know, well, it I mean, felt very big. So 
do you have those moments where you remember something that happened and you like physically shudder or yeah. like make a like, all the time? <clears throat> yep. Um, get some shame going. Get some guilt oh, going. Man. Yep. Mine like it happens all the time. I cannot get over when I was sixteen. For some reason, I thought it would be hilarious. I saw somebody eating chocolates. And I was walking behind him. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to fucking gank one of those right before they're about to eat it. I'm going to poop and pop it in my mouth. So it just was like, it seemed like Disney Channel-esque. Like it seems very innocent. Some kid being just a little shithead. Yeah. So I did it. And this kid who was way bigger than me grabbed me by the back of the neck and goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? I just went, oh, wow. That wasn't a normal thing that I just did. Mm-hmm. And I, so, like, I, I, it's hard for me to shake, like, I'll never be a normal guy. This fine. But there's certain things where I go, I wish I was normal in this capacity. You know what I'm saying? Chris, <laughs> do I want to start crying right now? <laughs> I don't know. Um, that is how I have felt for, like, my entire life, pretty <gasps> much. Really? Yeah, I just I've I've always just felt like the things that you do and the way that you think are not fucking normal. And like I know I know and we all say like what's normal and it's like there's there's a general threshold of like acceptable behavior. Yes. Right? Of Social like, contract. Right. Like if you do these things, I think generally people in the room are going to not be uncomfortable with you. Right. Right. Um, And I just, I don't know. And I still, I mean, I'm 35. You are? Yeah. I thought you were like 28. Dude. No, I'm 35. Where's the same age? <laughs> what? I could have been making references like sync and Borat. puka shell necklaces. And- oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm 35. I'll be 36 in January. Um, and I just learned about codependency. I just learned about it. And at the beginning of this, I said that I've been in therapy for almost my whole life. Oh. And I just fucking learned about it. That idea to me gets stuck in my mind and I feel so fucking pissed. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? Dude, okay, so I was 33 when I when I realized that I have, uh, I experienced hypomania. Mm-hmm. Hypomania is such a weird thing because it's it like, is weird. Depending on who's diagnosing you, they're either saying we're pretty sure you have bipolar, yeah, or you have X Y Z that culminates and you go super saiyan and have a fucking. This is a nerdy Dragon Ball Z reference. Sorry, I don't know Dragon Ball Z, <laughs> but like I'm with you with nerding. Um. So it's like either when these things meet, you experience hypomania or whatever. But um, I was listening to the radio and or a podcast and I this this podcast had this clairvoyant guy on. And he was talking about like all these connections that he feels and like how he's able to read people really easily Mm -hmm. and all these things. And he for some reason said that he's bipolar and a lot of people who are clairvoyant are bipolar. And it was this giant red sign. And so in my head, I went, oh, fuck. None of us are clairvoyant. 
None of us have, because my entire life I thought that I had this like ethereal connection, like some type of mm. connection to some other thing that made me capable of reading somebody in a way that others can't. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, it's not real. And like being 33, so I feel you yeah. big time. I cried in my car. I was like, oh my God, I'm not connected in the way that I thought. What is yep. really happening is my codependent and extroverted behavior done so many times. Mm-hmm. It's just, I can read people because I was pushing people constantly. You know what I mean? Okay, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So saying like, are you good? Are you okay? Uh-huh. If something feels... And you do that often enough, you're going to learn body language. You're going to learn all of these things because you're constantly putting it into practice your codependent and like extroverted bullshit yep. that you think you need to help somebody because they looked a certain way. So like- Have you done, yeah. Have you done any digging of like for yourself where that comes from? What, like why I do that? Like why why you have codependency? Why you're codependent? Uh, yeah. Because that's been the biggest trip for me. So it's so funny. Like when I was in treatment, uh, I had to ask like my parents if there was any history of alcoholism or addiction, mm-hmm. mental health issues, all these things. And I asked my mom, and I was like, "Are you sure there's no like?" mental health stuff going on on your side of the family. She was like, no, everybody. Oh, she, she didn't say everybody, but she started listing off like uncle. So-and-so is on this medication. Uncle's aunt. So-and-so is on this medication. So like all of my aunts and uncles are on medication baseline anxiety. Okay. Yep. So it's like, mom, all of us are fucking have massive mental health issues. Yeah. And my, my mom, I love you, mom. Again, before we even started recording, I said codependency is like a, a condition that I am fine with having. Oh, yeah. And I don't really like battle it. I do need boundaries. Yeah. But I don't like fight it and try to suppress it. Or anything. I don't fight it either. I can't fight it. But it definitely comes from my mom. I mean, we would hold strangers, kids, like watch. My, my mom took me to... Uh, uh, a back surgery or a back procedure one time. And we had to be there at six in the morning. So we're both fucking exhausted. Mm-hmm. We're in chairs like this. And my mom's like about to fall asleep. This lady walks in by herself with a baby in a, in a car seat. And I go, Hey mom, I just go like that. Mm-hmm. And she looks up and <laughs> doesn't move. Just looks at this lady and goes, let me hold that baby. And the lady goes, okay. And like, so there's something very non-threatening about people who are like that, I think. Like genuinely, like, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe, but like, I get it from my mom. I'm able to hold strangers' babies and like all these, like people just don't find me threatening. And it's because of this learned thing from my mom, whatever it is. Of not having boundaries. Yeah. Yes, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my mom watched a stranger's baby for 45 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. This woman went into have a procedure done, left her child with a complete stranger, and just completely trusted my mom. 
to me, it makes total sense. I go, yeah, of course. No. But nobody nobody knows like our intentions or anything. Like, right. It's crazy. But so my whole life, I just thought there's something special about us. And that's why people trust us. We have this weird connection. Mm-hmm. But, but really, you're absolutely right. It's like this lack of respecting boundaries. Yep. Done enough in certain scenarios, we just figured out a way to trick people <laughs> into trusting us. Well, and I, I think too, like, I'm glad that you said that you love your mom. Because I also, I also love my parents. I do love them. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> that I'm trying to answer for myself. And I've, I've had a, you know, I've had in the last like year or so, like some pretty tough conversations with my parents about like, why did you do the things that you did? Mm. Um, I, I always say that it's not on the child to make up for what the parent did. Oh, it's not. And like, because I've had so many people on here who say like the whole, they did the best they could or whatever. And it's like, my son seeing me surrounded by police officers and EMT personnel at the age of nine. It's not on him to make me feel better about right. having gone through that. Yeah. If he has questions or whatever he needs to deal with that, that's totally on me. Yeah. So I, I, I try to do that so that people don't feel weird about talking about scenarios with their parents. Because if they feel bad about it, then you might need to reevaluate how you view this situation. Right. Well, and that's like that's the work that I've been doing with with my therapist when she was like, you know, you are codependent. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. Like when she you know, she, I brought up this situation with my coworker and I explained it to her and she was like, that's codependency, like straight up. You need to start reading about this if you want to. And she recommended this book to me called Facing Codependency. Mm. Have you read it? No. Oh, God. Read it. It's so good. It took me a year to read. I have read. (laughs) I'd like to play alone, please. By Tom Segura. I love that plug. Just so, (laughs) um, so natural. Yeah, right? So effortless. (laughs) No, this book, Facing Codependency by Pia Melody. If there's anybody who feels like they might be codependent or have codependency or just like wants to know more about like what happens when your parents do fucked up shit. It's so weird. Like, and why you are the way you are as an adult. When, when the, like your gut reaction, when you hear codependency, did you not think like for me, I thought immediately that's, that's a relationship thing. Yes. I was like, this is not, I'm not in a romantic relationship with my parents. <laughs> like this cannot be. It's not because I can't live without someone. Like that's kind of how I processed it. Like it's like you can't be alone. But that's also that that's what it is though. Yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, when when I started to learn about codependency and like the fact that I had it like I just was so confused because I I was like I'm talking about helping a friend out i'm not talking about my wife and i like Mm -hmm. code i thought that codependency only related to whoever you're romantically involved i did too yeah no it doesn't it's like it's in all relationships and it a lot of times shows up for adults 
due to stuff that happened in childhood, like a lot of the times. And this book, like it's very, um, it's very easy to read, very candid, but it's like this PM Melody, she's a um a therapist and a researcher, I think. I don't know honestly anymore. It took me a year to read the book because it talks a lot about um like abuse and neglect and like all the things. Um and when you're trying to process that at least for me like when I'm trying to process that I'm still in the processing of that of trying to like do more of my understanding of it and it was it was an eye-opening read but also a very tough read for me Mm. so I also just want to preface that if anyone wants to read the book if you have a trauma history um just know that like some of the stuff she talks about can be triggering and like it can just be hard to read like any other book like for me, I had to like read a chapter and then put it down for a month <laughs> mm. and then, you know, read half a chapter and then put it down for a week. Like it was like I couldn't just like get through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, But it was very eye opening and reading that book and then doing therapy with my therapist on like what it means and how it's showing up. Yeah, there have been a lot of difficult conversations that have been had over the last year because it just kind of like busted, just like busted it wide open. Mm. And I'm one of those people, I don't know if you are either, but like once I know that something's there, I can't ignore it. Yep. Yep. I do. Is that you too? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, God. And I I wish that I could (laughs) maybe be a little bit more avoidant. Yeah. When you learn the thing, there's almost always like an example of somebody in your life where you're like i'm dying to bring this up to yes yeah Yeah. but like that was like that was the you know the thing for me uh, probably like the biggest thing for me so far other than like being queer that i was like excuse me (laughs) did you just say you're queer yes very i thought you and cammy were just living together no oh my god we are living together we are queering together. <laughs> <laughs> we sleep in the same bed. Sometimes I use her toothbrush. Is it a queer size bed? It's a king size bed. <laughs> Do you and Kim have a king? Yes. Yeah. I got pregnant by the Lord. Really? <laughs> that is, you would not believe how often I hear that. I am Mother Mary. No, <laughs> I got pregnant without having intercourse. Imagine that. You're a virgin? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Nothing is making sense. You're apparently queer. You queer with somebody. And then you queered out a baby? I queered out a baby. 100%. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I don't know what we were even talking about. Uh, Probably the fact that I have to pee super bad. Okay. This has been such a fun conversation it has um so when when you discover because i don't know how you identify with mental health issues um but like with your diagnoses do you recall how you coped with each one does that make sense like Mm -hmm. like when i found out the hypomania slash codependency thing like cried in my car like with 
the things that you found, did it seem alleviating or more of like, fuck? No, each, each one for me felt like when I, when I was diagnosed with, with depression, that felt alleviating because I mean, I like, I had, I knew that I was depressed and I knew that I had depression. Um, but I was trying to manage it without medications. Mm. And then it got to the point where I just was not able to do that anymore. Um, and I was like crying all the time and like not able to like function at work and like in relationships, it was hard. Um, so then I started to take, to take medication. Um, and that was super helpful for me. Very, very helpful. Um, and then anxiety just kind of like crept up out of nowhere. It wasn't really something that it was like, oh, like now I know that I have anxiety. Oh, yeah. You know, it, well, there wasn't like a like a pivotal moment for that. Codependency was one of the, knowing that I experienced that was probably one of the biggest reliefs that I have ever felt. Because for so long, I was doing these things and getting into these power struggles and feeling so burnt out and feeling like what am i doing and like why why do i feel shitty all the time um yeah and it was like oh like this is why like this is what it is it's codependency like this is why i expect people to read my mind and then get pissed when they don't have the answer like this is why i always want to help people this is why I don't have boundaries. This is why I overshare with people I've just met. Like, you know, and and then experience like a ton of guilt and shame of like, why did you do that? That was not, you know, you don't share that you experienced sexual abuse with someone you met 20 minutes ago. Yeah. That's well, not. It's weird. Like, it feels like you tricked yourself somehow. The, the way that you describe that, like I've, I've had that experience so many times where like I overshare and then I look back and I'm like, why did you let yourself do that? Yeah. And so it's like this, you have like this other thing or person, <laughs> not that we have multiple personalities, sir, but so, I mean, sometimes I feel <laughs> there's, I mean, it, it's not a personality, but it's like. Yeah, I but, know what you're saying. But yeah, you know what I mean? So it feels like so, oh, not necessarily that somebody else was present for that thing, <clears throat> but but very close to like you let somebody else make a decision for you. Yeah. You, you let your diagnosis make a decision for you. Yeah, and I... I am not one who's like super I'm I'm not super big on diagnosis. I'm more on like the experience of like what is happening maybe because of the diagnosis and then I I mean I have a whole tangent about that that we don't have time for. But <laughs> um yeah, being knowing that 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 I was codependent and like knowing that there was a way to unlearn that mm. and change that was extremely helpful and since then i have been deep diving into understanding what it means what it means for me to experience codependency and how i how do i free myself of that in 
whatever way that I can. Like, I know that it's probably going to be something that's here with me forever just because it's, I mean, a lot. I mean, they say I've read, I don't know if this is true, <laughs> but they say that like, would you mind cocking yeah, that back? Sorry. sorry. They say that like your behaviors and your, um, like ways of thinkings and, and patterns, um, are like instilled in you by the age of seven. Yeah. That would make sense, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, like, is it something where it'll get easier over time? Yeah, it already has gotten e easier over time. But I know that there's that there's always going to be times where I'm thinking about, like, I want to do this, but I'm worried about what other people think. Mm. Or I want to do this, but I'm worried about someone else. Or I'm going to forego my my boundary for someone else's comfort. You know, and then having to have a conversation with myself to talk myself into holding the boundary, setting the boundary. Therapy has become this really weird fucking thing lately with like better help, which yeah, if you guys want to sponsor, that'd be rad. But <laughs> but I've been hearing like throughout the community, like it's kind of fucking things up. Like there's so many people, like we really. We know all of their backgrounds. Like, we know, I don't know, it's like they talk about how they have thousands and thousands and thousands of therapists. And then, but in the real world, when you go, it can take two to four weeks to get in with somebody. So it's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Yeah. That is creating this surplus of like legit therapists. And yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, the need for therapy right now is very great. Um, I I don't I can't speak to like other times, but like speaking with other therapists um, and coming from inpatient where I was referring people to therapy. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that are going to therapy, whether that is because mental health is a little in regards to like doing therapy is a little less stigmatized now, whether it's social media than TikTok that's, you know, got younger kids like feeling that it's okay to talk about their feelings, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> you did a pun. Because you're talking about TikTokers. You said they feel like they could talk. TikTok their feelings. They're going to TikTok their feelings away. <laughs> Tickety TikTok. Let's taco about it. Oh my gosh. I love tacos. <laughs> All the tacos. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing better help for my own just because of the fact that I feel like the relationship is like so important. Yes. And even being able to build that through telehealth is like, can be challenging. Um, and I feel like y you get more out of it as a therapist and as a client, if you are in person and can sit face to face and like feel this person's personality, like, you know, you're in the room, you're sharing a moment in time that's like tangible. I don't know. I, I'm right there with you. Okay. I, I, it, I hadn't thought about it until I was talking to a therapist and, and she was talking about this convention that she went to and like, the issues that they were seeing with like this 
like I said, like the surplus of therapists when mm-hmm. people are struggling to find therapists. Like, how could this possibly happen when we've been talking for how many years about how we need more, but they're just not available? And then all of a sudden, thousands of them are available. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Seems weird. It does seem weird. I don't know. And if people are like, and a lot of people self-diagnose. So yep. that, so that's like what I'm speaking to, too, is like if you're going into a therapy session and you say, I'm pretty sure that I have bipolar disorder, depending on the type of therapist that you are, because I when I was 18, went to a therapist and said, uh, I'm pretty sure I have depression. And I did some research and saw that Zoloft helps with depression. And I think I'd like to be on Zoloft. And he was just like, that sounds good. That works for me. And so it was like a really short session. I had one session with the guy mm-hmm. and he just put me on Zoloft. And so that actually wouldn't even be a therapist. Oh, because therapist, Yeah. Therapists can't prescribe medication. Correct. But psychiatrists also do therapy. Yeah, exactly. So online, that's the other thing is like um, they advertise like how you can get a diagnosis and, you know, get prescribed X, Y, Z. So like, mm-hmm. If you can convince somebody that you have this thing and it's an it like seems logical for the psychiatrist or therapist, and I realize that this is like suggesting where their moral compass lies. Yeah. But back when you were talking about like the whole like an eight hour shift and that whole burnout thing, like if BetterHelp is a nine to five and they're going, I have to get through however many people if somebody gives me the answer that makes my job all the easier. Yep. And then I just go with it and just prescribe them whatever the fuck they want. Right. And that's not, it's just not the type of care I feel like people deserve. Yes. It's not. And I don't, and that's one of the reasons why I like, I'm trying and trying to be committed to my own non-burnout of like okay how many people can i see in a week um that's gonna help me like maintain my livelihood and pay my bills um but it's still gonna give me time to live with a little bit more ease and then be able to do my follow-up on for my job so that i can do it well you know self-care if I'm not doing self-care and I'm not taking care of myself, then I can't show up in session for people and hold space for their really heavy shit. It's just not possible. Um, so making sure that I'm doing that, making sure that I am. Um, where the fuck was I going with that? Costco. Oh, God, we just got a membership. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love Costco and I'm not afraid to admit it. Um Oh, yes. Making sure that I'm able to get my documentation done. So like another thing that that therapists experience that see too many people is their documentation just gets left and they and it gets built up and built up and built up and it becomes a huge source of stress. And then that affects like your work can affect your work. Maybe it doesn't for everybody. It would affect it for me. Um, And. Giving myself time to do trainings to, you know, build more knowledge and be able to bring more ideas and more 
more concepts into session that might be helpful for people. Like it's it's creating like a lifestyle that supports my job and supports my ability mm. to do the work that I love doing because I love doing it. I really do love doing it. Um, but it would be so shitty if I wasn't able to do it well. Right. And it didn't feel good. It's funny, like, that's one thing that's, like, kind of accurate when they, like, uh, depict therapists and psychiatrists uh, in TV and movie is that big pile of paperwork at home. Mm-hmm. They, I don't want that. bring all that shit home and, yep. they're, and they're trying to go through that. So, yeah, it's it's funny you say that. You know, I had a thing and then I drew a blank, but if I keep talking like this... <laughs> there there's like a looming thing of uncertainty in certain professional careers where like if somebody who has like a a stocking job Mm -hmm. there's stocking shelves like it's it's uh low risk as far as other people go Mm -hmm. like what i'm doing right now is not going to affect people but like with I mean, I'm about to become a piercer where I'm stabbing people and there's like... So awesome. It's going to be fun. It's going to be so great. I have a job where people come in and say, hey, make me look cooler than I do right now. (laughs) Yeah. Fucking all about it. (laughs) But at the same time, it's like the there's a there's a big risk in in letting people down and like it concerns me and and Mm -hmm. it's tough to get over that to be able to just that back to that whole normal thing that like threshold of like yeah i just want to not worry about this enough to make sure that i'm doing my job properly do you feel like you're at a place where like you're able to combat that feeling and be confident in what you're doing um yeah i mean i've i am a i am new to outpatient therapy so i'm still i'm still learning and I also think that as a therapist, if you're not always learning, then you're kind of not, you're not in it. Mm. Like if you, and if, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you kind of like show up in therapy and you're just like, well, I've arrived. I know, I know all the things, you know, like that's not, that that's, that's not real. It's not a real thing. Would I love for that to happen to me and to have that feeling? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I would love to feel like I can just master everything and never have to learn another thing again. Um, But it's just not real. So I try and just do my best of like showing up, knowing what I'm good at, knowing that I know how to make relationships, knowing that. I care about people knowing I know what it's like to be a client in therapy. Like I know what that experience is Um, and showing up to someone who you are just meeting and sharing intimate parts of your thoughts and your life is very vulnerable. And so being able to like have the knowledge of that to understand that like, what these people are coming here is very important, no matter what it is. And so showing up for them, providing space for them, 
um, knowing that I'm going to make mistakes and there's going to be things that I say in session where like later I'm going to think like that probably wasn't the best thing to say. Do I need to follow up on it later? Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe it's just, you know, a mistake that I made. That's the piece that I think is going to be the hardest for me is the mistake piece. Because I want to do a good job. I want to make sure that I'm like providing a good, I'm giving people what they deserve (laughs) in, in therapy. But I also, and this is something my therapist tells me all the time, um, need to acknowledge like the humble nature of what it means to be a human being. Mm. That's what she says. And it's so eloquent, eloquent. I knew exactly what you meant. You did. And beautiful and vulnerable and awful feeling at the same time. Like, but that is, it's true. Like we're all human. We're all flawed. And like trying to exist in that space is needed. I need to do more of that because perfection is not, it's not attainable. Yeah. I, 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 it's funny because as you were talking about that, I was like thinking about how, um, frustrating it is to go, I'm capable. Why did I do this? Mm -hmm. Like I'm better than this thing that I let happen or how come I'm not able to figure this out? I'm better than this. It's me. Jessica. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But is it that you're, but, and that, and I've, I've had those thoughts too, you know, of like, why did I do this? Like, I, I should have known better or, you know, whatever those thoughts. But I I think it's because with me, it goes back to the codependency in the sense of because I have sincerity in my heart and because my intentions are good, it should just happen. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't and, that be lovely? Right. Yeah. And so that's that's that what you're talking about, that that human aspect of things is like that's definitely something I struggle with. Yeah. And I think listeners, I think you some of you struggle with that as well. I think a lot of people struggle <laughs> with it and they don't even know that they struggle with it. Yeah. Yeah. It takes two incredible human beings, humble as well. Like us. Very humble. To- <laughs> I'm so humble. To, to really drop our boundaries, which is tough for us because boundaries are important. Boundaries are important. <laughs> but I will say, Chris, that as I would say a, a recovering codependent. Oh, nice. I like that. Yep. I was, a, I was being a little facetious, but. No, as I, but I think that's real, though. Like as as a recovering codependent, there is something that feels awfully seductive about not having boundaries. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You say all of the things that just hit me. <laughs> so good. But it's like you just can't because it's not it's not healthy. Yeah. It's not. God, that's so good. Yeah. Well, fuck, man. You definitely need to come back. I would love to come back. There it's so funny this because lovely. there's like yeah, there's umpteen fucking topics that I actually want to hit with you, but this was awesome as this well. This was awesome. Thank um, you for having me. And to the listeners, be well to yourselves. Oh, that's a lovely one. Okay, that's the end though. That's I'm, my sign off. Okay, you, say it again. No, that's a bit too. It's like oh. when people interject, I love doing that. <laughs> okay. I was like, oh fuck, I ruined it.